Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, this is Jose Ignacio Alfaro, producer of Are We Still Talking About This?, Today, Jessica and Adam speak with Larry Charles, director of Borat and Religious. His new documentary series, Larry Charles' Dangerous World of Comedy, is now available on Netflix. You can follow us on Instagram at Are We Still Talking About This? You can find the show on Acast, Google Play, iTunes, and Spotify. Do you have thoughts about this podcast? Is there anyone you would like to hear Jessica and Adam interview? Leave us a comment or rating and let us know. Special thanks to Outpost Digital LA. Enjoy. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Usually we end up talking about some confluence of trauma and comedy, and I'm sure a lot of that is due to your influence. <laughs> As, uh, <laughs> we got to spend some time with you working on your, your show, which just turned out wonderfully thank you and i think we're both very exceptional i'm very happy to hear that that you both feel proud of the show that's great thank you no it's been really really wonderful to see people's responses to it Uh, i have been uh, amazed and humbled i mean uh, it's probably gotten the best reaction of anything i've ever done actually so it's really it's very heartening i have to say Everything I've ever done, even things that were were treated very glowingly, have gotten bad reviews. Borat's gotten bad reviews. Everything has. But um, this has gotten overwhelmingly good response from all kinds of people. And yeah, of course, occasionally I've been called uh, out on uh, pronunciations, which, you know, are impossible and not in agreement in a lot of, a lot of the right. uh, situations. Well, I'm just glad that, like, Baked Alaska hasn't come after people. Well, thanks, no. thanks for reminding people. Yeah, yeah. That's a- we- no, we'll cut we can cut no, that out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We have a no, wide no, latitude. You know, you know what? Um, <laughs> it, it is. Uh, I'm very conscious of that. I yeah. mean, 
but I I'm also not. It's like I, I've tried to explain to people. I'm I was much more anxious on this. People say, well, "Were you ever scared?" And yeah, I was I was scared some of the time. But really, I get much more anxious, like getting to the airport in Saudi Arabia or something like that, than I really am like being trapped in the car in Mogadishu for whatever reason. I think when I completely surrender control. I lose fear, but when I think I have a modicum of control over a situation, that's when I, that's when the anxiety really kicks in for me. So, ironically, these trivial, frivolous things are what make me crazy. So, the idea of baked Alaska or some, you know, right wing extremist or anybody who might be angry for whatever reason stalking me, it just you know, I'm conscious of it. I'm aware of it. I'm always looking around. I live in that kind of you know awareness state, hopefully mindful state anyway. But I, I'm not afraid of that, really, at this point. I yeah. just think it's kind of a, you'd have to come a long way to stalk me, you know. So it's like, if you can figure it out on the GPS, you know, more power to you, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I think a lot of the most frightening folks didn't even make the, the show, which is kind of... Well, exactly. Kinda I mean, the stuff that didn't get in is almost as interesting in some cases as the stuff that got in, yes. Do you have a piece that you wish made it that didn't? Yes, the, the piece that jumps into my head immediately, and I think you'll relate to this, is Adi Khalifa. Yes. Um, Adi Khalifa is one of the great characters of this journey. He really is. I mean, and we met his mom and his brother. We went to his house and we went to his workshop where we saw the uh, young kids who've been traumatized by war in their region, by families being wiped out, it, it, doing stand-up comedy as a form of therapy. He's an inspiring guy in the way that Ahmed Al-Bashir, in his a different way, but similar in terms of inspiring young people around him to find another option besides violence. Um, he was in the show, he was in the show, but he really, unfortunately for right now, as the show exists, he didn't fit into the the formats of the of each episode anywhere easily i didn't want to cut him down you know and make it give him short shrift i thought the whole piece was really strong hopefully somewhere it could be seen i'm actually very close with him still i'm so happy so, he had his netflix special he's got a netflix yeah. special he comes to new york i've seen him here in los angeles a number of times so we keep tabs on each other uh, hopefully things will work out for him he's a very super talented sweet wonderful generous person and i think that's my main regret of things that didn't make the show because you went to nazareth to see him and his family in the exactly. small community yes. space the comedy club he built which just looks like a, a room with plastic chairs exactly exactly it's a, it's in a, in a kind of a very i mean that's a place you know he showed us like down the street the theater director who was, a, you know, there was a theater director in Nazareth who kind of did children's theater and try, tried to bring that kind of culture to this bombed out area. And he was assassinated. Wow. So it's so hard to, to make any inroads in that kind of thing and giving kids an option that he's doing it now. Very courageous guy. And uh, hopefully it'll work out, you know. And of course, cross, you know, you, when you try to cross the border, like going into Israel, you start to realize what it's like to kind of uh, the, the prison like atmosphere of a place like uh, like Palestine, where there are curfews and you can't get out and that's it. Or you can't get in and there's no negotiation appreciating that you know we were pulled out of the van a couple of times and like I had a diet Pepsi with me and they would make me 
the soldiers would make me drink the Diet Pepsi in front of them, the entire thing, because they thought they have to make sure it's not an explosive or some wow. kind of acid or something like that. So I'd have to drink it in front of them. And they would give us a hard time because we're coming, we're trying to go across this border. And eventually somebody, I don't know if it was Aaron or the, our fixer, whose name is Elio, I think, said uh, that I worked on Seinfeld. And then suddenly they rolled out the red carpet. I was treated like royalty in Israel, of course, you know. And it, it, so it's interesting, the arbitrariness of uh, who we are, you know. And yet in all these countries like Palestine, people love Seinfeld. It transcends any sort of ethnic uh, differences and the similarities around the world are much much more striking to me than the differences in Saudi Arabia. You may remember um, the uh, I, now. See, I can't. I, I I feel like you'll know his first name better than I do. But Fahad Albatari. Yes. Was is that correct? Absolutely. Okay. Cool. He's known, as we know from our research, as the Seinfeld of Saudi Arabia. Um, he's been. I did a long interview with him. Actually, it didn't w wind up in the show. Also, um, his wife was a driving activist who had been jailed previously, and then recently, not long after we did our interviews recently now, he and his wife have both been detained and kind of disappeared. And I've never heard that they've gotten out. So that's kind of frightening impact of like the immediacy uh, and the fragility of these people's position because he was feeling great comfort and hope at the time, actually. And, uh, you know, the Seifeld of, you know, the United States is uh, is able to sort of accumulate wealth and do great things and have a life of leisure and make all the choices and have freedom and the Seinfeld of Saudi Arabia is imprisoned. <laughs> so that's that kind of is the contrast of the show in, in stark relief, you know. Saudi Arabia to me, and um, I didn't go to Africa, which means I didn't go to Mogadishu, which is a whole nother level of scary. But just yeah. as far as places, I think Saudi Arabia might be the most intimidating place I've, I've ever been. Saudi Arabia is the kind of place that it's different than Iraq. It's not at war or anything like that. But I agree, you're constantly reminded, do not step out of line. If you step out of line, you know, and this guy, Fahad Albatari, who really was was like the most, one of the most successful comedians in Saudi Arabia, for him to be detained, for him to disappear, that's a pretty, that's, that's like you can easily step over the line almost no matter who you are. Yeah, because he wasn't a controversial Figure. Exactly, exactly. And, you know, it's like this is all pre-Khashoggi. And although, you know, there was a moment when we were there that everyone we spoke to had tremendous hope uh, because of the Crown Prince, uh, MBS, I guess his mm -hmm. name is, and his, his moniker. Um, there was an amazing amount of almost... Uh, um, blind optimism about the future you know that this was this was finally the reforms were going to happen that everybody felt needed to happen there and instead there's been this weird push and pull and crackdowns while there's been little pieces of freedom thrown out there um so it's a very confusing place and obviously an ominous place and i agree i felt too that because even the artists that we met there were you know they were free. They were they were middle class in a lot of ways, actually, and doing okay. A lot of the people that we met, but they did not. Um, they wouldn't go there when I wanted to talk to them about the government or about MBS right. or about those kind of things. They really sort of 
gave short shrift to those sort of themes, you know, and I found that interesting. In order for those people to live under those conditions, they had to do that. But then it also reminded me of the restrictions that we have on us that are kind of invisible, but also exist. And all cultures have that ultimately. I think another thing people might not um, fully get just from watching the show is that when you went to all these places, you were always very respectful, but also very fearless in your questions. So no matter where you went, you, you did ask these very purposeful questions that probably added to some atmosphere of, wow, if they really felt like it, they could uh, detain you for an inordinate amount of time. Uh, definitely, I mean, I think the, the I think about uh, General Butt Naked in terms of that stuff to, to some degree, and the, and on that level, it's really about being in a place once. We're not coming back. We're going to be here once. I'm going to see this guy once. I have to ask him the potentially rude, disrespectful questions that must be asked to make this all worthwhile, you know? So there's that. There is also like the situation like in Turkey where the first country we went to where we immediately inadvertently really kind of, it was the first place we went and we immediately ran into uh, issues um, with the state controlled media, with actors feeling like they were being pressured to talk about censorship and they were afraid. And so suddenly like tension arose quite rapidly without being prepared for it. And we wound up actually feeling like we were sort of being tracked and left the country prematurely to uh, to avoid uh, detainment. And of course, Turkey, even though they were outraged by Khashoggi, they've got about 1,500 journalists in jail themselves. Yeah. So all yeah. these countries point fingers at each other, including us, and in the end have their own sins to account for that they don't uh, they don't admit to. Yeah. Yeah, that was an example of uh, where you actually had to escape to Iraq, which I still find very exactly. Funny. That was our that was our next move. Was, was where can we go? Well, we'll go to Iraq. It's safe there. <laughs> <laughs> Another uh, fun thing about the show for me has been reading people's social media pages uh, that are really touched from these regions of the world saying, I'm happy that so-and-so is finally getting talked about, or I'm happy that people are taking the time to kind of explore what our humor is actually like. Has there been a response like that that's particularly touched you? Oh, my goodness. Well, I, you know, I, I've been now I've been doing some promotion, you know, and I think what's really struck me is is the global response. Uh, just in general, people are moved by it, and uh, really a lot of the things, you know, I think we've talked we talked about this early on. I went in with very comedic expectations, essentially. I wanted to look at satire. I wanted to look at uh, comedy that was directed at the government, at the oppressors. You know, I thought it was going to be... And it, it is a very hard-edged show around that kind of stuff, like Al Bashir. There are many comedians like that. But at the same time, and Al Bashir is also another ex an example of the opposite, which is using comedy as a healing tool, you know? And so I see that I, I'm now able to see the impact from people seeing these people who've never seen them before in these various cultures, which have their own oppression, feeling very um, like, a, like grateful and joyous that this, this light exists in the world, you know? And I'm very moved by that. And really, I did not go into this with such a lofty ambition, but it revealed itself and I'd be foolish not to uh, uh, embrace it, you know. Yeah, do you have any advice for people who are filmmakers around just being able to see what your project is and go with it? 
Well, we had a very, you know, I I fought very hard to have a process that allowed me to make choices on the fly, to pivot, uh, to stay relatively loose within the budget and the schedule. Um, That was a key part of this for me before it got even too specific was, you know, I had been very disenchanted and disillusioned by my last couple of large scale filmmaking experiences it was just it was too much of an army there were too many cooks there were too many writers too many producers you know everybody had to be serviced there was like the budget was out of control it seemed like a waste of money in many and indulgences in many cases and a lot of that responsibility fell on me and i felt like i didn't have control and yet i had the responsibility and i really didn't like that and i wanted to get back to a stripped down version of filmmaking very pure film making like we did in Borat, like I did in Religious, where it's like, who can fit in the van? That's the that's the show. And that's essentially what we did here. We we kind of stripped all that down so that there wasn't I didn't have to answer really to anybody. I didn't have to like get notes or you know, we once we committed, we committed it. We were able to plunge forward. And when things weren't working out, we were able to pivot because we built the schedule and we built the uh, the structure of the the process of making this in such a way that it had tremendous flexibility. And we got a lot more gold because of that than we really intended to. We got a lot more footage than we had ever really thought we would get, which is fantastic. Unfortunately, a lot of it's not been seen so far, but it's there. We did, uh, I think, four interviews, four extremely long interviews with with John Waters, Mike Cernovich, um, uh, Slavo Zizek, and uh, there may have been one of the... Uh, Rick Shapiro. Rick Shapiro, right, exactly. And Big Nick also, for that matter. Yes. But those are fascinating interviews and really kind of like com- very comprehensive. And again, I've gone to Netflix and tried to figure out a way to get those interviews out. Podcasts, you get this kind of pure thing. You can cut things if you want, but you don't have to. Right. You can let the flaws play, and it's okay. It's real. You know, that's what I'd like to do with those interviews because they're cool, they're interesting, they're insightful, they're unique. Uh, but right now, nobody is going to be expected. And I'm sure a lot of people would love to see the inside of John Waters' home, too. We also walked yeah. through John Waters' home, which was, uh, yeah, one of a kind. Yes, yeah. yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Uh, he wouldn't let us shoot a thing, a piece of art that Patty Hearst made, which was oh. interesting. Yeah. He had promised that he, to her that he would not, you know, let that be uh, exploited. But he gave wow. us the tour. You know, he was great. You know, he's a gracious host. He's, you know, he's the true, he's the, he's the definition, the personification, the epitome of a Ratcon tour, as well as a radical filmmaker. Yeah, some of those um, for the four interviews that you spoke about, there are moments in there that are like some of my favorite things ever that I've yeah, seen. Especially yeah, some of too. those Zizek comments are just hilarious and exactly. biting and insightful. But Adam, other than you, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, because I, I will say, people say, well, "What other stuff do you have?" I go, "I have this amazing interview yeah. with the great Eastern European philosopher Slavo Zizek," and they just. It's just blank. And it's like, wow, you, uh, nobody knows who he is, unfortunately. I mean, you and I are very small. <laughs> he has his groupies, but it's... My it's ex-boyfriend clearly... was very excited to hear that. <laughs> well, the problem is that his groupies and the comedy groupies, they should really synthesize, but right. they haven't yet. I'm trying to bring them together. It's part of my goal. Yeah. Well, one good thing we did in the show is it's... Uh, and this was a goal, obviously, was to, you know, to take this... And this is a goal in general for me, is to take very dark... 
essentially unfunny things to a large degree and make them funny and make them palatable in some way. And I think as dark and as harsh and as brutal and as tear-inducing as it is at times, it's also an entertainment and it's also uh, it's it's fun to watch. I mean, it's a trip also. And the and the the urgency with which we shot it, I think is uh, is felt very uh, clearly through the screen in for the audience as they watch it. They feel that urgency that we felt as we as we made it. Um, well, working on your show really made me want to find more interesting voices in comedy and challenging comedy um, as opposed to, okay, haha, I'm single, blah, blah, blah. Right. So working on your show is just quite um, an honor. It was so cool. Yeah, well, that's a, that's the difference in stakes. I mean, you see that difference. We tried to find some of those people here. And we yeah. did get some of those people here, like Rick Shapiro, like uh, the ladies of Native Comedy. Um, oh, Johan did... Miranda. Who's good? Johan Miranda was fantastic. And look, even Miss Pat is an amazing oh, star great. on the horizon. So we did find people who were on that cusp and practicing comedy. The veterans, of course, maybe most of all, yeah. you know. Mm -hmm. And that was the thing that I found. So another, you know, revelation, epiphany that I experienced was people turning, people with no place else to turn, literally, even in this society, turning to comedy to, to express themselves, to figure things out, to process the crazy shit that they've been through, you know? And that's when I began to realize that comedy is a very, very primal force. And it's uh, it, it ranks with breathing and eating and sleeping as an essential component, I think, of human nature. I remember when you, you first sent over stuff for Bobby Henline and we, we took a look at him, just kind of the power of him being able to take what he went through and then use it to be on stage and his optimism not only was touching to me but made me feel like a giant human piece of shit because you know? I'm like I, I'm sorry to hear that oh, yeah, well, I, that's my as you know it's my baseline right, anyway yeah yeah it's just but um, I, I couldn't imagine going through that and then having the resilience to I mean it's just kind of awesome I agree I mean uh, you know when I left Mogadishu I was like I, I don't know what I would do if I was I'm leaving you know this is part of again what drove me to do the show in the first place I would meet comedians in all these countries or if I was shooting a Pringles commercial in Thailand or whatever it was and Morocco stand-up comedy festival in Morocco when I was there shooting a movie and I would get to leave you know and come back here um, where I have a great life and I'm rewarded for my work and what do these people do who are stuck behind in oppressive regimes? How do they navigate that? And uh, that was a very humbling experience. Uh, it's, it's impossible for it not to be. And it's impossible not to put yourself in their shoes and wonder if you would have the balls to go through what they went through to be able to speak to their audience and try to heal their audience, uh, especially death hovering over the entire the death hovers over the entire equation, really, yeah. with almost everybody that we spoke to. It's, it's just really amazing, especially someone like al-Bashiri. I think we can relate to his father, right? A normal, you know, people have stuff with their dads and we can relate to the dad being or, you know, I can't personally disappointed or whatever. So that's one kind of human layer. What I can't relate to is getting a thrown out of the house because I was listening to a pop song in the middle of one of the most violent sectarian wars ever. Yeah. Well, I think one of the one of the differences between us and the people that we meet on this journey is especially in places like Iraq or Somalia, you are growing up 
in a war zone. You are a child of war, you know, and that boom right off the bat is different in our lives. We don't have war on our soil, you know, so we grow up and we go to school and we have our our challenges, but it's not a life or death situation to just go to school or to get to work, you know, or to stay in your house. You know, those things are generally not uh, life and death situations. In these countries where the time these kids are little, you know, we met the kid in Iraq who was part of the comedy troupe doing the live show, Bezzy Besman, and, you know, sweet, innocent little boy, you know, and he's afraid, you know, he's not afraid of ISIS, he's afraid of monsters and zombies. You know, kids are the same until they get ruined by the shit that these countries do to them, including our country. We, we and the world, the powers that be, hurt a lot of kids. And if they didn't, if they made a commitment to try to help these kids instead of making them, they have no choice but to hate and be angry. They, you know, they watch their parents. We met more than one person who saw their parents murdered in front of them. And yet somehow they're trying to do comedy. They're way less bitter and angry than I am, really. I, I'm impressed that they could come out of it and try to do comedy to to combat the violence rather than violence be getting more violence. That's very admirable. And I don't know that I would have the... Uh, the will, really, and I consider myself a strong-willed person, but the will to go on after watching your family wiped out, I mean, it's impossible to imagine, really. It's just impossible to imagine, so... Um, I, I, we saw you on The View recently. Right. Yeah. That was even that was the scariest of all, actually. Yeah. Did that give you anxiety? Way, way more than Mogadishu <laughs> at its worst. Uh, I'm telling you backstage, and it's like, you know, I, you know it's like I said, I said I'm happy to do you know, podcasts, interviews. I prefer not to do the live audience show because I know the pressure. I've done a lot of live audience shows as a writer or a producer or whatever, and it's it's nerve wracking, man. For me, I get freaked out if I don't, if I've done stand up or even sitting to talk to people, you know, in a venue that's with live audience. It's much more nerve wracking to walk out on the stage and all. So I was nervous, and it's the five women that format. You got like five minutes. They're counting down. There's the camera. You know, it's like there's a lot. And I, you know, I'm like, I'm like, you know, I just landed, you know, I just, I just got there, yeah. and, uh, but, but they had done a segment on Donald Trump just before I was going on, and Joy Behar, in her wisdom, said you should do something on Trump. You should open with something on Trump's hair. So I was like, oh, thank you. You know, she yeah. gave me like an icebreaker, you know, and her, because she's a professional, you know, and she knew I needed it. And she gave me the icebreaker and it kind of broke the ice. It got some laughs and then we were able to get into it. And, and I need that first laugh, you know, to, to relax myself. And then I was fine after that. Right. But it was fast. It, it whipped around and I was out of there. And the whole time I was in New York, that's how I was just pushed into rooms you know, interviewed, pushed to another place. It was it was really kind of whirlwind and fun, but I don't. I'm not even sure half the people I spoke to. That's, you yeah. know. I think someone on that show it might have been Megan McCain asked the question of why would somebody care what makes? Um, I think it was either ISIS or Al Shabaab laugh. She did. She did ask that about ISIS. Yes. And, and to me, and again, my perspective is probably different. That's just an incredibly myopic question because why wouldn't you want to know what someone else's experience was and it was kind of like when you were speaking about children of war you know 
produces people who get stuck in some pretty uncomfortable places. So I don't know why some people are still just hesitant to even consider things like that. Well, I think I think you know you see that a lot. I mean, I, that's one area of questioning that I have gotten is why should we care about what ISIS finds funny or what Al Shabaab finds funny or what but naked finds funny for that matter. And what I say to them is, you know, we see, and I think this is what I said to Megan McCain essentially, is like we see the end result of terror. It's almost just what my answer to the other question about these kids, you know, we see the end result of terrorism and we see the violence that it begats and the horrors that it begats, but we don't go back and try to, you know, go back to the beginning of it. How did it start? Why did it start? Well, you find out that, that you have little children who as innocent as the children that run around Santa Monica, but suddenly there's bombs falling. Suddenly parents are being killed, siblings are being killed, grandparents, friends. Your school is gone. Your house is gone. You live in a you live in a tent now, you know, and you you see things getting worse and worse and worse. And you can understand under those conditions how that happens. And I thought that it's valuable to try to tap into that and see that, you know, the road not taken. Uh, that that was there humor was there a chance was there a choice for all these people to go a different direction and then you meet the al-bashirs of the world who are committed to trying to find those kids at that vulnerable point and move them in this other direction and so that whole thing connects it's a very important connection i think i know personally i can imagine a situation where if i was in a part of the world and my family was killed I would join the militia that was trying to kill whoever killed them. Exactly, right? which yeah. is what you see again and again and again. Even, you know, bright people, they don't get a chance. They're stunted in their growth the way a uh, um, uh, somebody in the Olympics, uh, you know, the, the gymnastics you know, people are kind of stunted in their growth because they are forced or ice skating. They're forced right. to do it from the time they're a little kid and they have to practice all day long. Well, these kids are stunted in their growth also by the violence. You know, they're not allowed to grow up really like a normal kid and have normal interests because they have to live looking over their shoulder and hiding and with tragedy as a normal part of their everyday life, you know. And that's going to take you in a certain direction in life, especially in a place where there aren't that many other options. You know, it's not like we're saying, oh, well, it happened to somebody in Los Angeles, well, you can still do this and do that. The infrastructure is in place. No, this is already the infrastructure is long destroyed. So there's nothing to build on, which, if I may, is another part of the story, too, that we tell, which is the economics, uh, the economic reality of comedy around the world. We here have a comedy industry it produces a lot of revenue it's very successful if you're in and nigeria is maybe the only other place that has that sort of comedy infrastructure that is extremely lucrative comedians are the biggest stars in nigeria in a way like they are here too but a country like liberia it has no economy you know there's no place to you know see stand up there's no place to experience it and there's no place there's no venue even for your videos and things so there's no money in it so it's not a, it's not an economic you know, uh, uh, aspiration. It's a calling in those in those situations, you know, because there's no upside to it uh, economically. There's no career. There's no comedy career in most of these countries, you know. There's a need to use comedy to communicate with people, and that's what it's about more than anything else. And that's, again, a different, a different kind of stakes. 
Do you remember a point in your life where you knew you were always going to be drawn to dark material? I moved to Trump Village between second and third grade. But even before that, I was in another part of Brooklyn. You know, and I remember, in the, if you could believe this, this is like, you know, I don't know what year, even 64, 63. I'm like, I'm like in first and second grade. My parents never... I know this is going to sound crazy, but this is the God's honest truth and can be confirmed by people. They didn't, I was allowed to go out by myself in first and second grade. I could leave the apartment. I could go downstairs to Ocean Avenue. You're a latchkey kid. Uh, but my mother was home. Oh. My mother was home and she, I don't know, I, I really, she's gone now. I can't really ask her. But it's like what we, I think she was so thrown by motherhood that she was overwhelmed. This is my guess. But the end result was that I was walking around the streets, crossing streets when I was in first and second grade and walking to parks. And sometimes that worked out okay. Other times I was in scary situations with kids who were bullies, whatever. You know, uh, it's it was a scary way to, to grow up. And then when my brother was born, who's like almost three years younger than me, we used to stand in front of that building. This is before I moved to Trump. And I'd be I'd be in charge. Again, I'm in first to second grade, no more than that. And I'd be in charge of my little brother, which and we'd be just hanging out in front of the building with a couple other kids who were also allowed to be out. And the cars are whizzing by, whatever. And a guy came by one time and tried to kidnap my brother. And I got into a, I don't know what drove me to this, but and I was again. You can imagine how you know I'm a I'm a, I'm a second grader at, at most, and he's three years younger. And the guy comes up to us and he says, "I'm just going to take your brother around the corner for some candy." He actually used the candy line. I mean, it was like the early '60s. It was still fresh, still novel. Yeah, 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 it was still fresh. And but I knew one thing. I knew was that there was no candy store around that corner. And so he took my brother's hand. And I took my brother's other hand. And on Ocean Avenue, with these other kids standing around, the cars whizzing by, we started tug of war on my brother. And I would not let go of my brother, which, of course, I've lorded over him ever since. You can well imagine. And eventually, he saw that it was becoming a scene that somebody was going to see. And he let go, and he quickly scurried off. So I saved my brother's life. But I was also plunged into the world of kidnapping. I remember watching documentaries at that point about Lindbergh's baby wow. that was on TV so I was I, be, I was plunged into that dark world and then moving to Trump because it was such a demographic explosion all at one time that became like a Lord of the Flies type of atmosphere and there was a lot of you know uh, uh, adolescent violence um, you know like we talk about bullying today um, you know, every other kid where I grew up was a bully. You know, you were constantly getting your hat stolen and your your books knocked down, and you were being chased and you were being slapped arbitrarily because of the color of the jacket you were wearing, maybe. You know, so uh, I, it, you know, Brooklyn at that time was very rough, actually, and we were nice kids, but we were exposed to that roughness, and I think that started to, um, you know, provoke my interest and my curiosity when you were. Even though you're only in first or second grade, was it going through your mind of what they would have done to your brother had they had taken him? No, I had no idea. Yeah, I knew that I was supposed to watch him, and I, I you were supposed to keep an eye on him, and I knew that this guy was lying about the candy, and so I just had a, a, a kind of a reflex to not let him go, to not let him go. Now, he could have 
pushed me aside and taken him away. He didn't do that. And so for whatever reason, he was trying to just kind of convince me it was going to be okay, which he kept trying to do during the tug of war. It's going to be okay. We'll be right yeah. back, you know. And I was really ready to start screaming. I don't know if I did scream or not, but he eventually let go. Yeah. So, and no, I had no idea. You know, I had a friend. <laughs> I'll give you an idea how naive I was, my friends were, about things like that. When I was in third grade now, I moved to Trump, and there was a kid in Trump Village who was telling us about, about sex. He was telling us about the birds and the bees and how, how it really worked, what a penis was, what a vagina was, and only he knew all this stuff, you know. What was his name? Howard Fallock. <laughs> that was his name. But no one thought, oh my God, his name is Fallock. It's like, right. I, was, I was like 24 years old. So like, Wait a minute, his name is Fallock. You know, I was like walking in the street in Manhattan or something would have yeah. dawned on me, you know. So we were very, very naive. I mean, people in those days, kids used a lot of derogatory terms for homosexuals, all the bad terms and slurs were used randomly and yet no one really knew what they meant. You know what I mean? I think the kids had heard them from somewhere. I was I was not allowed. I didn't curse even, but there were kids that used those slurs on everybody all the time, and without knowing what they symbolized or what they represented. So there was a lot of that also. You know, just that kind of verbal pressure and abuse constantly kind of flowing. You know. Wow. I, I have two younger brothers, and I, I would, to this day, lord over them. I'd be like, you could have been in Mystic River. That would have been what happened to you. Are there times in your career where you feel your reflexes have helped you? I have had good reflexes, I have to say, luckily, over the course of time. I mean, I remember pushing somebody out of the way of a car, like that kind of thing. I've done that occasionally, which is cool. But I think the reflexes are most... Um, the, the way I've applied them, um, see, I think that a lot of the skills for survival as a child in Trump Village, in Brooklyn, in Coney Island, in Brighton Beach, in that whole area, those skills, it's a very hardcore survival of the fittest, fittest sort of equation. A lot of kids fell by the wayside. A lot of kids were mercilessly bullied. I was able to sidestep it by developing verbal skills and some street smarts and also just luckily being good in sports. It gave me a certain credibility with tough guys that I could play sports with them on their level you know and i got respect because of something like that which is of course absurd but i did and and took advantage of that to not be a victim in these situations you know so it was a very very rough world those skills that you develop as a child to survive in that environment are actually terrible for adulthood because you're suspicious you're paranoid you you have trouble trusting you are quick to react so it's not really good but when i did borat i found that all those skills were extremely useful i got out of you know we were in danger a lot i had to talk to police i had to talk to angry people with guns i had to talk to people we were being chased uh, throwing rocks at us. I mean, a lot of that, I had to talk people into things. Like, I had to talk people in, when I was in Brooklyn, I had to talk someone into not kicking my ass as much as talking them out of not kicking my ass, you know? So the same thing with this. I had to talk people into sitting down with Bora, and I was persuasive. And so a lot of the skills that I inadvertently developed as a child that have been sort of disastrous to be a balanced human being 
applied very well to directing a movie like Borat or Bruno, or this for that matter. Yeah. You mentioned before being uh, nervous in places or experiencing anxiety in airports, which both of us do as well tremendously. Is there any crazy anxiety? Oh, my God. Well, first of all, every time I'm on a plane, I'm just like, all right, well, it's been a nice run. There's going to be a mechanical problem. Something's going to happen. It's been great. You know, then everyone all happy. There's turbulence, whatever. I'm like, you know what? These are fucking idiots. Obviously, they've they have nothing to live for. But see, the turbulence is not what scares me. The turbulence everything. Once I'm on the plane, I'm good, actually. I could go. We we did some very long flying and the Somalia flight, the Nigeria to Somalia, you have to leave the continent and come back in. That's a 24-hour journey. So that I didn't mind. It was the between, it's like going, getting through security in Saudi Arabia. I never thought, I was ready to just collapse on the floor when we walked into the airport in Jeddah because it was overrun, it was night, everybody's screaming in Arabic. Right. There was, it's chaos. Fortunately, we always had somebody who was able to kind of push us through. And I was like a child in those situations and I just surrendered and got pushed through. But once I'm on the plane and the doors closed and the plane's taking off, that's where I surrender control completely. Right. And I'm okay with whatever happens because I have now zero control over the situation. No, I experienced something similar and um, don't know what it's about, but it used to be when the plane took off, I'm like, okay, I'm at peace because now if this fucker goes down, no one can get mad at me. Right, exactly. parents can't get mad at me. It's <laughs> totally out of my hands. But uh, the actual airport experience, it drives me crazy yeah 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 it, it is uh, yeah because once i'm on the plane i, I really am uh, free i'm not worried about uh, I, I don't think about it crashing really i have been by the way i've also been the somalia flight i felt I, I you know it was a long day 24 hour day and that last leg from wherever it was ghana or kenya i think it was ghana to Mogadishu, I kind of fell asleep. It was like a two-hour flight. And when I woke up, I looked out the window. <laughs> First of all, the other row was like up there, and I was like down here, right? And I looked out the window, and all I saw was the ocean. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? And they, they missed, a, you know, it was like one landing strip, and they missed it. Oof. And oh they had gosh. to do a banking turn and come back around and land. So there were, uh, but I've been on planes that had bomb scares that we had to get off. I mean, yeah. I've been on some crazy flights. But for some reason, like I said, that doesn't freak me out as much as the waiting for the crazy flight, you know. Um, the flying and stuff like that is actually, it's pleasurable. It's quiet. And I'm not comfortable almost anywhere anyway. So I'm really no less comfortable on an airplane seat, you know. Yeah, they, they really try and make it so you can't go to Mogadishu. They, people, yes, there's discouragement. <laughs> well, look, I was surprised that they let us go. I mean, we weren't allowed to go to Syria. There were countries we were not allowed into. And I thought for sure, I was being very bold about going to Somalia. And I kind of thought in the back of my head, they're never going to let us go. And then they said, yes. It's like, okay, we have to go to Somalia now, you know. And that was a little, that moment of like the reality of that. Well, the, um, the, we had to do the security training and the emergency medical training. You know, and you're thinking, yeah, they're telling you this because they think this could happen to you. You might be shot. You might have your head blown off, you know, and they want to, you to know what to do if someone in your party is like seriously hurt or how to run, where to hide, how to apply emergency medical. We had to be certified in all those things to do this, you know, yeah. not to mention the six vaccinations and the right. malaria pills. At least. You, yeah, yeah. You're yeah. saying all of this with a smile on your face. I'm wondering if <laughs> you're missing being on the road. 
Well, I, I I haven't done you know I haven't really worked uh, since I finished the show and um, and which which I love my life and I'm cool with it but I know that I have to work is very important to me so it's not so much being on the road as much as making something I want to, I'm ready to, I'm I've been ready for a while to make something else whether it's this another version of this which of course there is so many stories so many stories still to tell. Um, this would be there's a lot of material for a second season that we could go out and get, which is great. But whatever it is, I, I'm anxious, not even anxious, but impatient to start working on something. Uh, Hungry real. to make more. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of abstract stuff floating around. I want something tangible to start. Another thing people might not understand from the outside is the incredible amount of intense work you put into this for a very, very long period of time. One thing I've always observed about comedians, and you guys have been around comedians too, it's like I've been around a lot of old comedians, and they come to life when they're on stage and they get that love. I've seen George Burns be like slumped over in a chair backstage, and then his name is called, and he walks out in front of the audience, and he's like 20 years younger, you know? So I know there's this chemical thing that happens, and for me, I get that feeling from, from the work. You know, I feel very exhilarated, very vital, very alive from that. So I get something very personal and selfish from it, really, in a way as well, you know? That's an important part of it too, you know? Why I continue to pursue it. Do you have any advice for uh, younger folks or creative folks that maybe also grew up in contentious situations for dealing with anxiety as it pops up as an adult? Xanax. I, I highly, <laughs> highly recommend Xanax. Um, <laughs> that has worked for me, I have to say, um, because I, I've been, I, I've had an amazing, I had an amazing psychiatrist for many, many years that I went to, and he really helped me balance out my life that was very much sort of careening out of control at various times. He was, he was great. He was like a wise man, and I was very lucky to meet him. And he left eventually practice. So, you know, it's like there's certain things you can't, it's hard, it's hard to spot fix you know, just like people want to spot fix losing weight kind of thing, you know, I got to lose a little here or there. It's, it's hard to spot fix all your anxieties. So uh, the best, uh, and here I am, I, I'm, I'm not a young man anymore, and I still have that, you know, and it bothers me that I have it. You know, it bothers me that I'm at all paralyzed by anything at this point, let alone something this stupid, you know. So by taking this annex, I found the smallest one possible for that little period from leaving my house to getting through security. That's all I'm looking for. And it works. So there are situations where medication is a good idea. I think the rest of it has to do with really hard work, you know, therapeutic work, meditative work, all those things to face those fears as head on as you can. But I've had so many that I just haven't gotten to all of them. You know, <laughs> it's hard to get to all of them in one lifetime, you know. So the few that are left are, you know, I'm okay taking care of them with drugs. Spot basically. treating, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Spot treating the rest of yes, the guys. Yes. Well, that's wonderful. Thank yeah. you. Is there cool. anything else? Yeah, you want to throw yeah. out there for folks? Or? Yeah. No, I'm I'm happy that uh, to talk to you guys it was it was unique, and you have unique perspective on the show, and I appreciate that. I also, again, want to thank you both for your dedication to making the show as great as it is, and I'm glad you feel the way I feel, and that's I'm very proud of what we did. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. And I definitely I tell people. I don't know if you want me to tell people this, but when they ask me, how do you? I'm like, I, I learned this from Larry Charles. I know yeah. I do this, this, and this because thank of. You. Uh, Larry. I'm, I'm glad that I, I served that purpose. I, I tried. I, I, 
I want to be a, a, I want to be a positive influence. I want my stuff to have impact. You mentioned before about how long it takes to get these things off the ground. This is like three, four years from the time that I started talking to people about it to getting it made. It took a long time. And movies take a long time. All these things take a long time. And so I want the things that I do going forward like this, if I'm going to spend that amount of time and commit three, four years of my precious life to something, I wanted to have potentially have some impact and significance, you know, and that's the kind of stuff I'm looking to do. That's the kind of stuff I've always looked to do, but with even more urgency as time goes on. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.